Obviously, I love to preach, but I have to admit something. The highlight of my preaching career came 50 years ago when I preached my first sermon. I was 14 years old, and my youth minister had talked me into preaching a sermon in a sermon contest uh, at a youth rally up at Lincoln. And together, together, we wrote Rebel with a Cause. Uh, it was a takeoff from the James Dean movie Rebel Without a Cause. And I'd never even heard of that movie. So you know who was really responsible for the sermon. Anyway, Don coached me until I got my delivery right and I preached it to a panel of judges. I thought that was the end of it. Until at the awards banquet, it was announced that uh, I was the winner. And then someone whispered into my ear that I would be preaching my sermon to 6,000 people the next day. It was an experience I'll never forget. <laughs> and one that can never be repeated. But you know, the same was true of Peter's first sermon. Fifty days before the sermon, he was cursing like a sailor, denying that he even knew Jesus. But now, on the day of Pentecost, he was standing before thousands, declaring Jesus is Lord and Christ. In many respects, it was the highlight of his preaching career. And without a doubt, one of his finest, if not the finest, sermon he ever preached. But then again, he didn't write it or deliver it without help either. The Holy Spirit had just been poured out upon the apostles, and they had all been declaring the mighty deeds of God in languages they'd never learned. A crowd had been gathered by the sound of a violent rushing wind filling the temple. And the people were asking, what does this mean? The introduction to his sermon had been supernaturally crafted. The audience was ready. All he had to do was stand up and start preaching. And this he did. He began by briefly addressing the skeptics who refused to believe God was at work in what was taking place. And then answered the question, what does this mean? Now, we looked at that much of the sermon last week. Today, we come to the heart of his message, a declaration that he had made privately to Jesus in the company of the apostles a year earlier, a declaration Jesus had told them to keep to themselves until the time was right. Well, the time was right. It was time for the world to know that Jesus is Lord and Christ. We begin with Peter's claims about Jesus. We're in the second chapter of Acts, ready for verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, 
delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter began by making sure that his audience knew who he was talking about. He was talking about Jesus the Nazarene. He didn't want there to be any confusion about the person of Jesus. In the land of Palestine, there were a lot of Jesuses. It was a very common name as it is in Spanish-speaking countries today. Peter wanted to make sure they knew he was talking about Jesus the Nazarene, the carpenter's son who had grown up in the Galilean village of Nazareth. Now for them, the description the Nazarene was merely a clarification. For us, it's an affirmation of the fact that Jesus was a real person living in a real place in a real time in history. You know, Jesus is not a mythological character created by religious dreamers 2,000 years ago. He was a real man who walked the face of the earth. But he was more than just a man, as attested to by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God performed through him in the presence of many who were standing there that day on Pentecost. They had seen the miracles, the supernatural demonstrations of power that he had performed. They had wondered and marveled at them. They knew they were signs from God, indicating that Jesus was speaking and acting with divine authority. They couldn't deny anything Peter had said thus far. But then he added, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. Now, they couldn't deny that they had put Jesus to death. The Jewish leaders, speaking for the Jewish nation, had sentenced Jesus to death. But since Rome had taken away their authority to carry out executions, they had to ask godless, unbelieving Gentile men to nail him to a cross on their behalf. This they had done, and no one denied it. But then Peter slipped in something that they didn't know. He said they had delivered Jesus up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, they thought they had done it on their own, but God had planned it and knew what was going to happen long before it happened. Now, this didn't get them off the hook. You know, God's predetermined plans and foreknowledge do not mean we are pawns without personal responsibility for our actions. God in his infinite wisdom has made it possible for his will to be sovereign and his plans to be followed without violating the free will he's given to us. Quite frankly, I don't know how he does it, but he does. 
It had been God's plan from the beginning of time to send his son into the world to save it. He knew it would be necessary for him to die for us before he made us. And Jesus came knowing full well what he was going to have to do. Now, again, that does not mean those who crucified him were without blame. They were guilty of crucifying the Son of God. And they would be held accountable for what they had done, just as Judas was personally responsible for the betrayal of Christ. But some of the sting of what they had done was removed by knowing that they hadn't thwarted the will of God by killing his son, as if anyone could thwart the will of God. And as they would soon discover, forgiveness was available, even for them if they would repent and be washed clean of their sin. But let's not get ahead of Peter. Let's stay with his sermon as it unfolds. He declared to them that it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus had been put to death and then declared that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Literally, it says the birth pangs of death. The picture is one of Jesus being held in the womb of death, but then breaking forth because death couldn't hold him in its power. Peter was declaring publicly for the first time that Jesus had risen from the grave. No doubt his listeners had heard the rumors about an empty tomb, but now they were hearing from Peter's lips what had happened. Jesus had risen from the dead. Those were the claims Peter made about Jesus in that first gospel sermon, and no one questioned some of his claims. They knew Jesus was from Nazareth. They knew he had worked miracles, and they knew they had killed him. But Peter was going to have to prove his assertions that this had all been done with the predetermined and foreknowledge of God and that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And this he does next. Let's look at his proofs. Verses 25 through 36. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, 
to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter set out to prove his assertions about Jesus. And he proved his assertions about Jesus the same way we do. Through the testimony of Scripture, the witness of the apostles, and the presence of the Spirit in the world. He began by turning to Scripture, quoting a couple of David's psalms that were a bit enigmatic even to the Jewish scholars and enigmatic to us this morning when we read them. In Psalm 16, David speaks of the confidence he has, knowing he is in the presence of God and that God is in control of whatever is happening to him. But then, as with many of David's psalms, he changes the focus from himself to a descendant of his who would sit on the throne. Of that descendant, David said God would not abandon his soul to Hades, the unseen world of departed spirits, nor allow him to undergo decay. Now, Peter said it was obvious David wasn't talking about himself here because his tomb was still in Jerusalem. In fact, It had been looted a couple of times. His body had decayed, but his bones were still there. No, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Christ, the Messiah, the promised heir to his throne who would not be abandoned to Hades nor see his flesh suffer decay. He was talking about Jesus, the one God raised up again, to which the apostles and over 500 other witnesses could testify. And it was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus had risen from the dead. The fact that David had spoken of it a thousand years before it happened proved it had been predetermined and foreknown. And the resurrected Christ had been seen alive by witnesses, witnesses still alive at the time who could be cross-examined. Many who would go on to die as martyrs for the faith. And no one dies willingly for a lie. But men of honor will die for the truth. And this the apostles would do, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen and been commissioned by the risen Christ. And then, as David had also foretold, Jesus had ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. When David wrote in Hebrew, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, he used 
two words that can be translated Lord. The first is the word from which we get the proper name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. The second is Adonai, or simply Lord. So David was saying that Jehovah God was telling David's Lord to sit at his right hand. And who was David's Lord? The one who had ascended into heaven just 10 days earlier. The one David had prophesied about in the Psalms. And the one who had sent the Spirit and caused the supernatural phenomenon they had just witnessed. The sound of a violent rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the miraculous declaration of the deeds of God in nearly a dozen different languages. In addition to everything, Peter's claims about Jesus were confirmed by the presence of his spirit in the world and by his spirit inhabiting the lives of believers. And the same is true today. We know Jesus is Lord in Christ. He is Lord of the universe, ruling from God's heavenly throne. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, sitting on David's eternal throne, according to promise. We know this to be true because of the testimony of Scripture, witness of the apostles and the presence of his spirit in our lives. On the basis of those proofs, Peter boldly declared, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He had proven his case. And the people were pierced to the heart. They responded by asking, brethren, what shall we do? What a perfect way to frame a sermon. It began in response to the question, what does this mean? And ended by responding to the question, what shall we do? Next week, we'll look at Peter's answer to that final question, and we'll see what happened when they received his word. But for now, let me simply say, if you've not surrendered to the lordship of Christ, now is the time to do so. For Jesus is Lord and Christ. And you can either sit by his side or lay under his feet. The choice is yours. Will you surrender personally to his lordship? If you've not done so, today's the day. Let's stand.